From Foreign Policy, I'm Amy McKinnon, sitting in for Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, the Uyghurs. This past Wednesday, a bipartisan group of lawmakers introduced legislation which, if passed, would compel the Trump administration to take a stronger stance against China for its treatment of the Uyghurs. The Senate bill was co-sponsored by Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who in July held a hearing on the situation in Xinjiang. One expert who was testifying today described Uyghur Xinjiang as a police state to rival North Korea with a formalized racism on the order of South African apartheid. As many as one million Uyghurs are being held in massive internment camps in Western China. That's according to the United Nations. Almost the same size as Alaska, the Xinjiang region is home to 11 million Uyghurs. A mostly Muslim group, they have strong cultural ties to Central Asia. The camps are supposedly re-education for people the government deems to be suspicious, but some disappear and are never heard from again. And the scale of the dragnet worries Uyghurs abroad, who say relatives can disappear just for having a beard or WhatsApp messaging on a phone. Mosques have been bulldozed. The Uyghur language has been banned in schools. Ankle-length skirts and long beards are prohibited. For those living in Xinjiang, there is no escaping the Chinese government. Security cameras use facial recognition technology, and people are forced to download a monitoring spyware onto their phones. Government officials will even stay in the homes of Uyghur families. Kuchera Hoya is a Uyghur journalist with Radio Free Asia and testified at Marco Rubio's hearing earlier in the summer. Almost two dozen members of her family in Xinjiang have disappeared. Kuchera joins us today. So Kuchera, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So if you could just start by giving me a little bit of background on the Uyghurs. Who, who are they? I'm a Uyghur too. <laughs> I'm a Uyghur American. Uh-huh. Uh, the Uyghurs have lived under autonomous self-rule for countless generations, going back thousands of years. Today, it's uh, estimated there are between 12 to 15 million uh, Uyghurs living in China's far west, also known as East Turkestan and the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Uh, most of them, they have own religion, uh, which is Islam. They have Uyghur language, culture, uh, of course, history, totally different from the Han Chinese, uh, and have a very unique cultural identity. And you're from Urumqi, yes, the capital of Xinjiang. Yes, I born in Urumqi. I studied there. Uh, I live until 28 years old in Urumqi city. And what is it like? Can you describe it to me? It's a very modern city, but recently more Han Chinese population than Uyghur people. So right now becoming like Han Chinese city, you cannot see much more Uyghurs there. So 19-something percent of uh, the population in Urumqi is Han Chinese. So more Han Chinese people are moving into the region? Yes. Mm-hmm. Every development job benefit just for the Han Chinese people. 
Is the government giving incentives for people to move to the region, for Han people to move to the region? Yeah, of course. They have very uh, good policies. So if you uh, move there, they provide the job, provide the houses. You can live not worried about anything. And why are they doing this? <sighs> Occupation, I think. <laughs> And what was your life like when you lived in Urumqi? What did you do? I was a Xinjiang TV's program host and director of children's program. You were a children's uh, TV host, right? Actually, I create first ever uh, Uyghur language kids program in Xinjiang TV. I love my job, but they using us to propaganda to our Uyghur people, actually. So I couldn't take any more. I just give up everything. So I came to U.S. to work for Radio Free Asia for the freedom of speech. Tell me about when you decided to leave China and to start working for Radio Free Asia. I came 2001. I leave China for vacation, actually, uh, in 2001 summer. I went to Europe, and that's uh, my first time see the Internet freely and listening to the Uyghur radio, which is only Uyghur international news organization in the world, uh, Radio Free Asia. I was impressed. I was like, how do I describe my feeling? It's like very different feeling. I was like questioning myself, like, what am I doing? So it's like a guilty feeling, you know. So I feel I used by Chinese government. So I immediately changed my mind. You should work for Radio Free Asia, <laughs> you know. So I just follow my uh, feeling to contact them. So then after I came here. And you haven't been back home since? No, it's impossible because the China seeing Radio Free Asia is the number one enemy. Uh, so we, uh, the broadcaster also is targeted. Uh, our family at back home all targeted by Chinese government. So this 17 years, I couldn't back. When you called your parents to say that you weren't going to be coming home after your vacation and that you're moving to America to work for Radio Free Asia, how did they react? Speechless. Like about 20, 30 seconds after I told my daddy, Daddy, I'm in America right now. Maybe I cannot back soon, so I am working in Uyghur Radio. He was shocked, maybe, and he couldn't speak. And after 30 seconds, my mom picks up phone, and I repeat my words to my mom, and she was crying right away. And then we couldn't talk, and I hang up. After like one, two hours later, I call back, 
and they were like very calm, says, just be safe. No other words. <laughs> Have they been supportive of your work? Of course, our phone 24 hours monitoring by Chinese authorities. So they cannot like openly support me, of course. But they didn't say anything against what I'm doing. That's support, I feel. But even that, it's um, causing suffering for them. And what happened to your family last year? So first, my brother was taken by Chinese police. So when my mom asked them, why are you taking my son? The policeman gave answer back to my mom, says, his sister over there, is that not enough? So he's uh, detained just because of me, because I am producing free news telling true to the world. Then after a few months, 2018, February, my whole family, my dad, my mom, my aunts, all other cousins, lost contact, and I find out they all taken by authorities in same day to the camp. That time, my father was in hospital. Uh, he had a stroke uh, several years already. Uh, and my mom has some health issue too, but they don't care. They just took all. That time I uh, spoke out yeah, to the media to tell my story. So after one and a half month, uh, they released my mom from the jail. And as my mom described, they couldn't take my father, but they isolated him to the hospital room. But they took, including my mom and the other 23 close relatives. They all in the concentration camp right now. 23 people wow. in my family. Just because of your work? Yes. And where were they held? What were the conditions like? We don't know. They don't allow to visit. They don't give any information about the situation about them to the families. How many of your relatives have been released? Only my mom released because of her health issue. Oh, wow. She developed heart problem in jail. So somehow they released her. I don't know. Maybe because I was speaking out. I'm not sure, but they released her. She is 72 years old woman, sick. They were taking her to the jail one, chain her and black-hooded, ill-treated and tortured in the camp. They call re-education camp, but it's a jail. So my mom was taking like several different pills every day because of her health issue. So 
she need those medication, but without medication, she couldn't stay more than nine days. She just very sick in the jail room, so they take her to the hospital, and then they treat her in the hospital two weeks, then released her. And when you say she was tortured, what happened to her? I think ill-treated is the torture. And physically, they didn't do anything, but the chain, 72 years old woman, and scare her and accuse and using bad word every day, just give her a very low meal, like no water, nine days, my mom says. Even you cannot wash your face, wash your hands. No water. When she have a high blood pressure in the jail room, she asked pill, you know, medication. But they giving her old coughing medicine. <laughs> My mom is 40 years experienced pharmacist, you know, so she can recognize. <laughs> they were cough pills. Yeah, not for the blood pressure. So they give just little steamed bread, very hard, and then just like kind of soup, but it's not soup. You cannot see any vegetable inside, but it has color water, yeah. She lost a lot, you know. Even after she come back home, the policeman who every day visited her, he even couldn't recognize my mom. He says, you changed a lot. In nine days? Mm-hmm. In nine days, yes. And 23 members of your family, you still don't know where they are? We don't know. What do you think has happened? I cannot imagine. Many deaths in the camps, torture, many, many issues. I'm afraid to imagine more. Yeah. I understand that you know the UN has estimated that up to a million people are being held in these conditions. What have you heard from people who have who have left the camps and who've left China? As we um, interviewed who escaped from China, who was detained in one year, two years ago, as they described, this is not like uh, re-education or some kind of center. That's like concentration camps. That's worse than actually the jail. They have been tortured. They have been ill-treated. Those people who in the camps, they're not criminals. They're just regular people just because of their identity, because of their Uyghur, because of their belief. They're locked up there, including professors, singers, musicians, and doctors, many, many more. And the Chinese government has said that the goals of these camps is transformation. Um, and there's been reports of Uyghur people having to write these kind of self-criticism essays and hours of singing patriotic Chinese songs and forced lessons in Mandarin. What do you think the goal of these camps is? 
the goal <sighs> some people say that's ethnic cleansing is that what you think is going on we don't know for sure and outside of the camps what is it like for people you know living in Xinjiang who are uyghur if you are a uyghur person living in Xinjiang what kind of things would rouse suspicion from the authorities in China after they start the re-education camp right now we see china's authorities are cruelly putting the children of some of xinjiang's political detainees in the state institution said children yeah this is the part of the perverse government program to take muslim children from the extended families in the name of children's material well-being it's like a cultural genocide they're trying to wipe away the the uyghur culture identity yes how are they doing that they just change to do han chinese education to all schools to ban the uyghur language in the school system and they ban the uyghur books and what do you know about this campaign called becoming family they using this policy from 2016 i think first of all they using so much officials to moving into the families to watching them and using uh some program to brainwash you know they teaching them i read songs and government politics and uh, control their uh religion practices you know the uyghurs home becoming their own home right now so how can you imagine every level affected by chinese government uyghur lives So government officials are moving into the homes of Uyghur families and living with them. Living with them. Even they have contract. Both of them have to sign. They have to look after each other. <laughs> But we are not sure what is included. Are they there to spy on them? I think not only that. Mhm. because those families every uyghur is being taken to the camp after they taking to the camp those empty houses becoming the officials houses i think then you all life whole children all your things becoming their <laughs> new a relative you know under their control So I don't know what what is going on what we have to pay attention to this part what is behind it I think not only to monitor Uyghurs and I understand that the Chinese government has used some pretty high tech means of surveillance in the region using facial recognition cameras biometrics yes. and even big data what have you learned about this in your reporting So first of all they took all 
all Uyghurs DNA, also screen test, everything. Their friends, their relationships, all monitoring by uh, Chinese government. So nothing left, no freedom at all over there. They even want to occupy your mind. And I understand that some of the technology that they're using in this surveillance is supplied by American companies. Yeah, unfortunately. Have there been calls to put a stop to that? Yeah, already uh, Marco Rubio was mentioned in a hearing. Those companies should stop selling equipment to the China. So some countries just doing business, but human rights issue not important. <laughs> we have to, you know, the humanity first between countries or countries, between the business with countries, no matter what. We are same. We are all people. We sharing one whole world. So we connected each other. What has the reaction been from the global community to the news of these detention camps and this crackdown in Xinjiang? Some countries, as a U.S., and uh, some world organization, they are calling Chinese government to stop. But some Muslim countries <laughs> still keeping quiet. Why is that? I don't know. They have strong uh, relationship with China economically. So some countries are afraid to speak out against China because of its yes. economic clout. Mm-hmm. Do you think the reaction from the global community has been enough? I think no. We're still struggling to give the right view. Because if you ask someone who's Uyghurs, still very little people knowing who are the Uyghurs. What are your fears for where the situation is headed for Uyghur people in Xinjiang? Yeah, this re-education camps affected our lives many, many ways. Because I am Uyghur, I am from that country, my old relatives living there. So as a journalist, I affected, as a person, I affected, as a sister, as a daughter, I affected. So we are worried, extremely worried. Because we don't know what's going to happen next. We're just hoping. Do you think you'll ever be able to go back? I hope. <laughs> I hope. Every Uyghurs outside of the Uyghur region, everybody wants to one day come back home. Of course, that's our homeland. Our family's over there. It's my hope, my dream. What do you think would happen to you if you went back now? Now it's not possible, <laughs> of course. Maybe I'm just missing from the airport. It's very dangerous for us. How have you maintained a relationship with your family over 17 years when you haven't been able to go home? <sighs> How can I say it? 
dreaming about each other, <laughs> you know, praying, and sometimes able to call. Like several years ago, it was little open for us. We were chatting a video chat. That time is the happiest moment in my life. <laughs> I can see my mother, my father face, you know, but they changed a lot. But two years ago, social media banned, so we cannot reach them. Even phone call is impossible for many, many Uyghurs outside. They cannot reach their family. So it's very difficult. It's difficult. Have your parents been able to meet your children? Yes, once. My husband is Kazakh citizen. But he is Uyghur. He is born in Kazakhstan. So he took my oldest daughter in uh, 2008 before Beijing Olympics. So we think that time China is little open for the world. So the more journals over there so they cannot do uh, very dangerous stuff. So we just take chance. And my husband took my oldest daughter to the Urumqi, to meet with my parents. That's the only time. That is the happiest time for my parents' life. So after that, we couldn't do that anymore. So they did see my oldest daughter. Other two children, they didn't see. Even my kids affected by this harsh policy. Has the Chinese government ever tried to get you to stop your reporting on this? Yes, this uh, non-stoply. Yeah, sometimes call on the phone, uh, harassing, and come visiting my family to harassing them, to talk to me, to stop my work. But your family has never asked you to stop? They just repeat, the police says this, that, of course they forced to do that. Would you ever stop your work? No. We are the only hope. Because I believe speaking true is matter. Thank you for coming on. It's been wonderful to have you. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for your timing. Thank you. That's Gocha Rahoya, a Uyghur journalist who works for Radio Free Asia. First Person is produced by Dan Efron, edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Amy McKinnon, and Sarah Wildman returns next week. <laughs>